This is Chapter 50 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. We travel through time this week with the newest novel from Matt Haig. Then we'll introduce you to Charles Todd, a mother-son murder mystery writing team. And finally, we speak with a New York City author who, believe it or not, likes to write while sitting on the outer deck of the Staten Island Ferry. In How to Stop Time, we get to know Tom Hazard, who, despite looking like your average 41-year-old, is harboring a big secret. He's actually very old, 439 years old to be exact. I spoke with author Matt Haig about how he first came up with the premise for the book and what he hopes the person with an average lifespan, like you and me, can take away from it. Well, I had the idea of writing a story from someone who was impossibly old about 10 years ago, but that's all I had. I just had this premise. I didn't have any um, story or anything. So I wrote lots of other books in between, and I just had this idea. At the start, it was nothing but this this voice of this sort of outsider who, who is very, very old. And I don't know really um, why why that happened or where it came from, but it was there, and it was the sort of it, that was what came first. The, I, I knew who this character was and I knew what he sounded like, but I didn't know what the story was until a, a lot of years later. Was there anything in particular that made you realize that now the time was right to write this story? There's a painting in the uh, National Portrait Gallery in London that um, is of somebody called Omai, who is this character who features in the book, but he was a real historical figure. And I was staring at this um, painting of this guy who was from Tahiti, and he was brought back um, by Captain Cook on Captain Cook's second voyage back to England. And it became this kind of exotic trophy almost. And he was a sort of a celebrity who everyone wanted at their dinner parties in the 1770s. And I was, just, I was staring at this painting uh, um, of this very handsome-looking, ageless um, man, I, I was thinking, oh, well, this could be um, Tom's friend. And then I was thinking, well, Tom could travel the world, uh, you know, with Captain Cook. And various things started to unravel just by um, staring at this painting in a gallery. So that's when the actual pieces of the plot started to emerge. And I felt it was the right time to put pen to paper or finger to laptop. So in addition to Oh My, Captain Cook, Tom meets a lot of famous people along the way. How did you decide who he would cross paths with? Well, sometimes it was just for reasons of the plot and the story, and other times it was just purely for fun. Like, for instance, there's an encounter with the Fitzgeralds, with Scott and Zelda, and that was just me having fun. You know, they're not in it for long, they're in it for two pages, and it was just like me using the novel as my own personal time machine and um, going to meet um, Scott and Zelda. And that was one of my principles with this book was, was to have fun. At other times, as with Captain Cook, it was uh, more of a purpose for the story. There's also a character who was a real doctor, Dr. Jonathan Hutchinson, who was a, a renowned Victorian doctor who's not famous now, but he was famous at the time, who, who features in the novel. Um, because he's the one who first um, diagnoses the condition of anageria. And um, so I, I, I thought he, he would be an interesting character because he'd also diagnosed in real life a condition called progeria, where people, which is a real condition, where people age too quickly. So I kind of reversed the science on that and included um, Dr. Hutchinson in the story. 
It's very interesting that you created this opposite to progeria because it kind of makes sense that the world, for it to remain balanced, there would have to be something to counteract it. Well, it's interesting because once I, once I um, was looking at progeria, it was quite easy to reverse the science of it and so easy that my publisher even asked me, he said, is anageria a real condition? <laughs> and I said, well, as far as I know, people aren't going around to live to 900 years old at the moment. But yes, when I was writing it, I was almost believing in Anageria as a real thing. And I was thinking, oh, it's, it's almost possible. And um, also recently, in recent years, they've discovered so many species which can live far. They realize they can't like there's these sharks around um, Greenland, Greenland sharks who they discovered can live to a thousand years old. So as I was researching the book, I was starting to think, oh, it possibly is a real life secret condition. So that's quite fun. So I know this book is on its way to becoming a film with Benedict Cumberbatch slated to star as Tom. How do you feel about your character leaping off the page onto the big screen? Well, it's very exciting. And I, I know some writers sometimes say, oh, we're a little bit worried about, you know, uh, versions. And, you know, I think they'll do something very different with it. And, I, you know, from my perspective, I'm, I'm not going to have much involvement at all. I don't think they want me to be involved that much. And I'm perfectly happy with that because they've got some great, great people um, working on it, as well as Benedict. They've got uh, the screenwriter, Anthony McCartan, who was the writer of, well, most recently, the Churchill biopic, Darkest Hour, and also the Theory of Everything. That You remember the Stephen Hawking film? So they've got great talent already on it. They haven't got a director yet because the script isn't finished, but um, it's shaping up well, and it, it's, that's just exciting. And I, I, I'm perfectly, I mean, my job was writing the book. I've written the book. The book is the book. And whatever happens with the film, the book will still be the book. So I, I'm unhappy, basically. <laughs> what do you want readers to take away from this book? Well, I'm a great believer that books can be entertaining, but they can also hopefully be a bit meaningful as well. You know, very often we have this idea that there's serious fiction over here, and then there's entertaining sort of thrillerish fiction over there, and never the two shall meet. I'm a great believer that those two things can meet, that you can have something that's an entertaining adventure story, that's a love story as well, but it can also actually say something about life. And, and really, I think the reason I had this idea so many years ago of, of this old voice was it was just a great way of exploring things that I'm, I'm sort of obsessive and get anxious about and all things about grief and life and love, and you can put all those in because... If you live to 439 years old, you would become naturally philosophical and you'd see lots of things in life and politics and society repeating over and over. So a lot of that's in there too. So it's a, hopefully a book that people enjoy turning the pages of, but also makes them think a little bit too. I will tell you, I walked away with, you want us to slow down and live in the moment. Yeah, definitely. It's a kind of mindfulness novel in that sense. It's about, you know, how we live without being obsessed by the future or the past all the time. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. That was a pleasure. Caroline and Charles Todd have been writing books together since 1996, and their series featuring Inspector Ian Rutledge is set in post-World War I England. Their newest book is titled The Gatekeeper, 
and it takes place in a village where the last wolf in England was killed in medieval times. Our Pat Farnack recently spoke with the mother-son writing duo. You know, guys, it seems that this is the year to focus on uh, post-World War I and on uh, Britain. I just spoke to Jessica Fellows about the Midford Mysteries just last week, and mm-hmm. uh, and I devoured, as I was telling your mom, I devoured The Gatekeeper in a single weekend. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Our favorite email from fans is when they write in and say, I hate you, I stayed up till 2 o'clock in the morning finishing the book, and I had an 8 o'clock meeting. <laughs> well, what is it about the period that fascinated you? Well, for one thing, nobody had been writing about it when we started. And the other thing was that if you're going back that far, you can have a detective who detects not someone who is dependent on on a lab or um, technical expertise. Not that we're against that, but we wanted the challenge of a, a man who could use his own wits, could try to think through a situation, use his experience to back him up, and, and really create a game of wits between the good guy and the bad guy. And this we have... have Really enjoyed doing. It's that chase between the protagonist and the villain that I think we all like to watch. Even in Columbo, where you know who the villain is from the very beginning, it's that interaction and chase between the the villain quite oftentimes knows in their heart of hearts that somebody's going to come looking for them. And they're trying as hard as they can not to be found. And yet the hero's or protagonist's job is to track them down. It's psychological suspense. We began writing uh, Test of Wills in 1994, and it was published in 1996. Set the scene, if you will, for what happens in The Gatekeeper. Well, this is something we wanted to try. Rutledge usually gets to the scene of the crime a day, two days after it happens. And we thought it would be interesting to have him arrive on the scene minutes uh, after it happened and start the, the investigation from that position. And it really was quite a challenge to, to do this without giving him too much information, but just enough to, to make 400 pages. <laughs> what happens is he's driving aimlessly in the middle of the night after his sister's wedding. She's been one of the bulwarks against his PTSD, and now she's married and has other um, uh, relationships to deal with. And he's having an episode of, of PTSD, seeing the battlefield, doesn't hear the shot, but finds a car standing in the middle of the road, a woman in evening dress, standing over a body next to the car, and her hands are bloody. And this yeah, is how the, 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 the setting begins in Suffolk in England. You mentioned PTSD. Inspector Ian Rutledge has a, a, a dark secret. Uh, they called it shell shock in those days. And he even has a, a voice in his head. Yes, the only way he could bring Hamish McLeod home a man he had had to kill on the battlefield, uh, was to keep him alive in his own mind. It's survivor's guilt, and he he hears his voice, 
He doesn't see him. He knows he's dead. But that voice is proof that Hamish is is back in England, even though Rutledge knows he's in a grave in France. In an odd way, Hamish is a coping mechanism for Rutledge. Hamish is not a ghost. He's not a spirit. It's In many ways, Rutledge's alter ego, as he tries to compartmentalize the horror that he's been through in his life. And this is a time in British society where to be labeled as someone with shell shock is considered a sign of weakness, cowardice, and something to be ashamed of and bring shame on the entire family. So throughout the series, it's been very important to Rutledge that he conceal difficulties he's going through coping with returning back home from a horrible experience. And so it's through his conversations really in his own mind with Hamish that he's able to separate his and return to the yard. That was the most important return to the yard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if he had had a physical wound, he couldn't have come back. And so as long as he can find a way to cope with this voice, he's safe at the yard. The Gatekeeper is also a story about about family, and I thought about all the different kinds of mothers and their sons and uh, their relationships without giving too much away. And it's perfect that the story was written by a mother-son team. <laughs> well, that was strictly accidental. Um, <clears throat> we wanted to compare what can happen in families. And so there, there is a way to, to look at how people handle relationships, why murder could have been done in a number of cases, whether they are suspects or um, just witnesses. So it, it was, we like a challenge, and every book is, is a fresh challenge for us. It is through this type of detection that we're able to display and discuss all the interpersonal relationships within a village because it is through finding out uh, who's the person who got murdered, why did they get murdered, what, what breakdown in personal relations did cause this event to take place. These are very different kinds of crimes because out in the countryside in England, even now to a certain extent, murder is very rare. And when it happens, usually it's something very obvious that the local constabulary is able to deal with right away. Man shoots his wife, wife shoots man, those kinds of things. But it's through learning, okay, who was Stephen Wentworth? What made him tick? Who were the people he knew? And how did other people perceive him and his role in that village that really starts the ball rolling for Rutledge. And through that, we're able to go in and look at his relationship with his mother, with the lady at the church, and so on. Mm -hmm. Use real settings. We changed the name so that we can murder freely. But um, the places are places we have been photographed extensively, spent time in to get the flavor, because Villages in England are as different as night and day from each other. And you find something there that you know would make murder possible.
The wolf pit exists under another name. <laughs> uh, how logistically does it work for the two of you to uh, concoct a book? Well, both of us are movie buffs as well as history buffs. And we discovered that we sort of both see a, a movie in our mind as we're plotting a scene. We do everything together. Uh, what he knows, I know. What I know, he knows. And we work out each scene, talking to each other, and then we start writing it and choose the best paragraphs as we talk about how the suspect will be interviewed or how the major clues will be distributed. We don't outline. We just discuss it and then start writing together and choose the best parts. We didn't know how to collaborate. No idea when we started. So we found a system that works for us, but it doesn't mean that it's the one that will work for everybody. That was the thing. We First of all, we didn't set out to say we want to write a book that will be published one day. We both love mysteries. As Caroline will say, I've matured enough. I was... Uh, <laughs> I had moved away from home and lived on my own and had my own career for, for many years. But we wanted to see if we could kind of like doing a puzzle and say, hey, I wonder if I could take a picture and cut it up in little pieces and have somebody put it back together. And so Caroline's exactly right. It was very difficult at first. And there were quite a few false starts until we found what worked for us several other collaborators that work on books that have a completely different system. I've done symposiums with and moderated panels with co-authors extensively, and no two do it the same. Does one defer to the other if there's a, a disagreement, or does it depend? No, we defer to the character. Ah. We, we try to think in terms of what would actually happen with this character. What would she say? What would he say? How would this person perceive the, the problem they're facing? And if it doesn't work for the person, it really doesn't work for the book. I mean, we have some squabbles, <laughs> but it's always, well, this has to work for the reader as well as for us. And that's the way we resolve them. I don't, <clears throat> I don't think we could have survived this process if we allowed ego to determine how we move forward. To this day, I don't think Caroline or I could pick up a copy of The Gatekeeper and turn to a page and say, that is my sentence. I wrote that. <laughs> Caroline did not write that sentence. Because by the time we go through the collaborative process and then the editing process and everything else, by the time the book comes out, quite honestly, we know the story, we know how it got written, but it's not, this is mine, this is hers. This is the story that we wanted to tell and tried to do it to the best of our ability. Well, it's been so much fun talking to Charles and Caroline Todd about The Gatekeeper. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's our it's pleasure. pleasure. I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. I really did. <clears throat> I really did. During World War II, diaries were a big no-no. 
But that didn't stop Army First Lieutenant Rocky Boyer, who was stationed in New Guinea and the Philippines, from keeping one. And it's a good thing he did, because all these years later, his son, Alan Boyer, has turned the illicit diary into a book that details the war in the Southwest Pacific. He recently visited our studios and spoke with our Paul Murnane about it. Nearly 80 years ago, Roscoe Boyer, Rocky to his friends, right? He made the decision to keep a diary about his experience as a a young army officer in the Pacific during World War II. Those journals in the hands of his son, Alan, offer us a glimpse into the creation, really, of the, uh, the military machine that led the Allies to victory in the Pacific. And Alan Boyer, I'm so glad you could come and talk with us today. Paul, thanks. I'm glad to come in. And uh, Lisa, your producer, uh, thank you very much as well. I'm glad to talk. He was in at the very beginning, your father, of, I guess, the Army Air Force, they called it then. He was actually in the Army Air Corps for a while. The Corps. Until they sorted it out and made it an Air Force and finally a freestanding Air Force after the war. He was drafted in June of 1941, the morning after he graduated from college. Yeah. He graduated at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and 8 o'clock the next morning he had to be sworn in, um, Camp Atterbury in Indianapolis. So he was in there from before the war and didn't leave until uh, the war was won in the Pacific and yeah. finally mustered out. He finally came home at the end of 45. In November of 45, he finally shipped out, right? That's correct. Did you, did you, were you always aware that he had this this wartime diary i mean you know from the time you were a kid did you know that he had written about his his war experience and did he talk about it he didn't talk about it a great deal he talked about it mostly when we were driving we we lived in mississippi and he had grown up in indiana so all our family were in indiana and we drove between indiana and mississippi twice a year for holidays and summer vacations i knew that he'd kept a diary uh he mentioned it occasionally he would talk late at night while we were driving, maybe as a way of staying awake, and that's where I heard about uh, the time they were shelled by the Japanese and the time that someone's plane was shot down by mistake. I found the diary, I think, when we were moving between houses in 1970 and we were packing up everything up, and it came to light, and I read it then. I, I had just read Catch-22, and I thought this was a marvelous book. It was as good as Catch-22, or at least said the same things. And so I read it then. And then I didn't know where it was for about 35 years after that and uh, found it again uh, when my father was old and we were getting things ready and packing things up and found it and brought it back and Xeroxed it and began getting it transcribed. Your dad strikes me as honest, a man of integrity. You don't, in, in reading this book and, and seeing the excerpts from the diary, you, you don't get any sense of, of bragging about things that you would expect from a young man. You look at a young man in his 20s today on social media, some of the things that they're saying, some of the things that they do. Your father seemed very grown up. He was very grown up. He was, as many of them were, church-going math majors. They were the techies of the day. And I think he may have thought that other people did uh, more than enough bragging for everybody involved. He did have a sense of um, being part of something in that was part of history in capital letters. Because when he begins this diary, he opens the page and prints across the top in all capitals, The Prelude to Battle, September 8th, 1943. Then he begins writing, and by the time he reaches the second part of his book, he calls it Behind the Lines, as if he's started to figure out that Prelude to Battle goes on for a very long time before the battle actually arrives. 
he had a sense of where things were going that he was he was witnessing history and he was able to write about it. He did do that. He thought about that. He gave definitely an unvarnished view of things. He liked Catch-22 when uh, the book came out and thought that the only thing that was beyond the war that was fictional about the book was that Joseph Heller had crammed into one little airbase everything that had actually happened out there, all of the uh, the colorful incidents, the shenanigans, the, the the fighting, the losses, the humor, the sadness. Just packed it into one bunch of characters. What a journey he had from Indiana and then down through the Panama Canal. And, you know, we, we have war histories, but they're, you know, you read about the major battles. You read about the, the dropping of the atomic bomb. In reading this book, I came to understand that we started this war off the northern coast of Australia. New Guinea, his first stop was New Guinea, right? Yes. And then he followed it right through. He went on to the Philippines and then on to, I believe, Okinawa at the end of the war, right? He had reached that point. They were getting ready to invade the home islands of Japan. Which they expected would happen around November of 45. They thought that was going to And they were preparing for that. <laughs> yes, indeed. And he'd already been in the service at this point four or five years. 1941 to 1945, yes, four long years. Four years, and yes. there was really no end in sight. He didn't think there was, and they were all very, very much relieved to uh, hear that the atomic bomb had been dropped. And every serviceman who was there, I think, kept a photograph of the white-painted Japanese surrender planes that landed and uh, disgorged diplomats and generals to come and sign a, a, an armistice. They were glad to see those. He writes in a very matter-of-fact way about things, even, as you said, describing firefights and things. Um I, I, I didn't get a sense that there was maybe a lot of emotion or fear, maybe, or no? I'm not certain how often he felt afraid. Um, I do know he was pretty much a uh, – he was not unimaginative. He was not given to uh, emotions, let me say that. It was a surprise to read your father's diary when he written when he is a 23- or 24-year-old man and to find uh, your father, of all people, talking about how maddening it is, quote-unquote, to hear a nurse laughing in the middle of the night from the colonel's tent down the block, or, uh, this was also very surprising, to talk about a dream that amounts to a visit from a ghost. That was just as surprising because my father was the last man any ghost in its right mind would have tried to contact. He would not have believed in it, even if he saw it. Yeah. Your father passed away in 2008. Had you started the book at that point? Were you thinking about writing a book based on this, or was this something that after he passed? I'd always thought about uh, putting it into print. I think this is the first book that I ever wanted to publish. It was a novel. Of, it, was a, it was a diary of the Second World War. Of course it has to be put into print. I think I thought something like that. And I wanted to get it started. I had it copied. I was trying to find somebody who could spend the time to transcribe it and put it uh, into a typescript. I'm imagining a, a stack of leather-bound, dusty journals, maybe wrapped with string or something. That's what I picture in my mind. I mean, was that what it was, or was it a bunch of, uh, you know, papers in a box? How, what form did this thing have? It's a little notebook about uh, eight by nine inches, uh, spirals, or actually a three-hole binder notebook, very small notebook full of ruled pages covered with very neat script going on and on for pages at a time. So it's, it was one, it's one journal. It's one journal. Yeah. Now, he'd written some letters before. He tried keeping a journal in, in boot camp, which I have never found. 
I know that only because somebody typed it up. I don't know who that was. We talked about, uh, you know, there, there, there's not a lot of, of maybe fear to be felt and, and, and a lot of emotion, but he does describe how rough it was, how, uh, you know, uh, seeking cover from air raids and running into a cave in one of these uh, one of these islands that had been held by the Japanese, and they would discover that uh, the corpses of uh, Japanese soldiers were, were, were inside as they were, you know, huddling against uh, air raids and such. It was rough. That is correct. Um, and if he, don't, if he didn't act scared too much, he was sort of grim about it, or I'm not sure what the word would be. He said once, there were times when you knew that someone was going to be killed, and you hope it would, and you hope that it would not be you. That was how he put it. The pace of things was New Guinea to up into the Philippines. It take me along his journey. Where did he began uh, on the the, the southwestern side of the island of New Guinea? Right, right, southeastern. They come ashore at Port Moresby. I looked at a map on this and worked it out. And if you think of Port Moresby at Pensacola. It works fairly well because in both cases, you have that long island falling away to the south of you, New Guinea and the Pacific and um, uh, Florida here. It, it, but anyway, imagine that they come ashore at Pensacola. From Pensacola, they jump up to around Atlanta, which is where NADZAB, the, the biggest air base in the world, is. And at that point, they're looking at Japanese bases at Rabaul, which is in around Charlotte, North Carolina, and at Weewak in New Guinea, which is about where Nashville is. They leap past both of those. The best step that Douglas MacArthur ever took at a general was to bypass those bases and the hundreds of thousands of Japanese troops who were there and just leap past them and isolate them and leave them behind. They went from uh, Nadzab, remember that was in uh, Georgia, they went to Hollandia, which is at essentially Oklahoma City. They jumped from Hollandia to Biak, which is far out in the Oklahoma panhandle. They then moved on to liberate the Philippines. And when you move on to liberate the Philippines, you are far up on the coast above Vancouver. That is a space of uh, geography that they covered in one year's time from the fall of 1943 to the fall of 1944. Amazing. I mean, thousands and thousands of miles and every island had to be fought for and claimed back from the Japanese. And uh, it was just a job that they did. And they had to, along the way, build the airstrips. They had to assemble the, uh, the, the living quarters. Everything that was needed, what you think about, he, was, he, he, he watched. And uh, he never, it, it wasn't much, he, he wasn't a complainer. I think he, as you said, just kind of matter of fact, would talk about how these things were built and what went in and how they got the job done. He was disgruntled. They were all disgruntled, and uh, I think he probably complained as much as anyone else complained, and they all complained. Yeah, maybe not over the top. I mean, uh, it, it was disgruntled, I guess, is the way you you kind of kept it a little bit uh, down low and maybe kind of mumbled under your breath. But one of his gripes would have been that his uh, squadron communications officer. They would no sooner land and get the uh, telephone grid set up than they'd move on again, and so everything would be left behind. Uh, no, everyone wanted to go home as soon as they could. As soon as people reached New Guinea, everyone wanted immediately to go home. If they couldn't go home, everyone wanted to go, everyone wanted to, go to Australia because in Australia, you weren't in a war zone, and 
there were lots of young Australian women around and American soldiers had money to spend and it seems to have been a great time. Everyone who was in Australia agrees about that. They were disgruntled because they thought everyone above them uh, had better access to nurses and had liquor to drink and had better plumbing and had better tents with floors. And they complained about this throughout the war. Wasn't there a, a story about some Australian nurses came to visit and he wrote something like, well, if you're not an officer, you don't, you don't, you don't rank a nurse or something, something to that effect. It, it takes a captain to rate a nurse. Right, right. <laughs> and at that point in, uh, in Port Moresby, which is a relatively civilized country, women are so rare that whenever you see one, you record the sightings as if it were a bird and you're a bird watcher. And we saw eight nurses tonight. They came in about 1030. And he was this guy from the, you know, Franklin County, Indiana, in the middle of the Pacific. And um, like I said, he got the, he got the job done. But you wonder in 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 reading um, whether he must have been just overwhelmed by the whole thing. He didn't seem to be. I don't think he was overwhelmed particularly. There was a lot of spare time. They kept them as busy as they could. They showed movies. They had chaplains who organized uh, basketball games. They had chaplains who organized field trips or fishing expeditions, that's pretty much what you can do off the coast of New Guinea. Um, I know that he read more than you will see in here. One of the books he brought home was a a one-volume copy of Shakespeare, which apparently he'd read a good deal. And they read newspapers when they could get them. They read magazines. They read anything that could be gotten and brought up. He was also working, remember. They... uh, George Kenney, who's, who's Air Force commander, uh, makes the statement during the war that the Air Force is the only part of the Allied forces that's in continual, everyday combat with the Japanese. The Army is waiting for the next invasion. The Navy is waiting for the next invasion or engagement. Only the Air Force is fighting on a day-to-day basis. And that's largely true, but even so, there's a lot of downtime there. The weather is bad. Missions have to be canceled because the target's uh, fogged in. The You have to rest your planes. You have to rest your pilots. You have to rotate your pilots. You have to uh, service your engines. Things go haywire. When you invade an island like Biak, you anticipate that you'll be able to drill wells for water, and you don't know that Biak is a coral island, and so all the water soaks out into the Pacific through the coral. Digging a well is absolutely no good. You have to pack. You have to wait. He learned very well the Army maxim, you know, hurry up and wait. You pack the planes, well, you aren't going to fly the next morning, it turns out. You'll fly that night probably. So what do you do? That's one of the rare occasions when, so to speak, he had a day off. And even decades later from the diary, you can see what a treat that was. He and some friends found a Jeep and they drove past miles of Australian army camps till they found a, a beach. They went down and went swimming. And then they came back and they went to the Australian Officers Club in Port Moresby and had their big night out and drove back and found out they were supposed to be loading the, the planes already, so they went back and loaded the planes and took off at dawn. For him, the war ends. He is on Okinawa, and the war comes to an end. Um, there's, there's not a big dramatic end to the war in his mind. I guess after four years of doing this, he was happy to be done with it. But the war comes to an end. The war came to an end, and as he said, a lot of people didn't know what they were going to do next. They 
hadn't had to keep track of days during the war. You did the same thing every day. You got up, you fueled the planes, you serviced the planes, you made sure the radio was working, you read your reports, and the pilots took the planes out and you waited for them to come back. You were used to seeing empty airstrips and the planes would come back and you'd see who had come back and who hadn't. Uh, there was a lot of fighting along the way. I uh, should emphasize that. They were in daily contact with the enemy. They would fly missions, and sometimes they would shoot it out with the Japanese anti-aircraft gunners below. Uh, sometimes they'd sink a Japanese ship. Sometimes a ship would shoot down one of their planes. In the middle of the war, during the Biak campaign, one of the squadrons in his group with men he knew uh, participated in one of the most suicidal missions of the Pacific War from an American perspective. There were 10 bombers from the 17th Tactical Reconnaissance Squadron. They were the only bombers available on the American front lines because the Japanese had been very successful at knocking planes out in night raids. Ten left. Ten left. The only, well, there are, other, there are fighter planes aplenty, but if you want to sink a ship, you need a bomber to do it. And there was a Japanese convoy of destroyers uh, ferrying Japanese troops to Biak. Biak was a... Uh, the only place in the, the area where you could build airfields and the Japanese fought very hard for it. It was a bloodier battle than people recognized and this little adjunct fight uh, w was as bloody as anything on the land. Ten bombers to attack six Japanese destroyers is wholly inadequate. Everyone was unhappy with this. And then the commander of the squadron stepped into the room where the briefing was going on he wasn't supposed to fly, but he walked up to the chalkboard, rubbed out the name of the leader of the mission, and wrote his own name in, which was in effect daring everyone to follow him, as saying that the, the old man was going to sit in on this hand of the game himself. And so they went out, and they flew, and they flew for all morning, and they found the Japanese finally, and they were hoping they were destroyers. They were simply freighters, but they weren't. They were destroyers. And at that moment, they heard Major Tennille, the commander of the squadron, say, pick your targets, I will lead. And he began to dive, and so no one really had a choice but to follow. They, they, they thought the, they knew, everyone knew that the math was wrong, let me put it that way. In the next 90 seconds after that, the squadron won 60 distinguished flying crosses. 19 of these were posthumous. The Japanese shot down the first three planes, including Major Tinil and all of his crew. That was one of the worst days of the war for the group. There were other days which were just as bad. The air raids that you mentioned. It's not the days that are bad, really. It's the nights that are bad when the Japanese send over single planes to bomb. Yeah. And then there's um, Mindoro in the Philippines, where not only do the Japanese send in planes to bomb and strafe, they send in a force of destroyers and cruisers to shell the airfield. And everyone's just arrived. They have um, a handful of bombers. They have a handful of fighters. And so my father is one of the officers who goes down to the airfield that night and spends the evening with, with Japanese shells coming in and Japanese planes bombing and strafing, loading up the P-40s and the B-25s and sending them out to strike the Japanese forces off the shore about to shell them. That was something he did talk about. I had to build up a lot of those details from the squadron records, from the 
histories that you can find, even from the Japanese uh, reports of the action. Um, he didn't write about that extensively? That, he didn't write about no. that. That was in the Philippines, and as, you, and as he said, in the Philippines, things got busy. Yeah. That's when they had the, the typhoon. That's when they had the second typhoon. That's when the Japanese dropped paratroops on them. He talked about that. Uh, the Japanese dropped paratroops on them one evening, and so they all melted away into the tree line because they knew they couldn't stand up against paratroops. And so they waited until our own paratroopers came up, and then for three days they fought what was called the Battle of the Airfields. The Japanese were on one side of the airstrip, and we were on the other, and both sides shot at each other and maneuvered in the darkness, and uh, his group shot some white horses one night, um, maybe a yeah. sergeant too. Right. Yeah. Um, it was busy. Busy. Yes. So less time writing, more time thinking, and probably taking a deep breath and saying, okay, I've made it this far. Uh, maybe not the energy or the inkling to do the writing or to, you know, kind of record things, as you said, for history. It was also, more of a struggle. <laughs> it was also very wet. Remember, yeah. they're doing all this in three feet of mud. He was putting his uh, radio tubes in the safe to keep them dry, and he may have put the journal in there, too, but he was so busy working with the, the radio sets and keeping things dry that he wasn't writing at that time. Yeah. He wrote letters home, but not a journal. I love uh, also the scene that uh, the war is over. He flies back. He takes the train back to Indiana. He takes a bus. He gets off the bus. He walks, I think, a quarter mile or whatever to the door. He comes to the door. His mother's on the phone. And the mother turns and looks at him and says, I have to go. Uh, Roscoe's home. Is that that's that, correct. That's the memory that yeah. he had. That's yeah. how, and, and you know, but there was no doubt he came back a changed man. You, ha, you can't go through that and not be changed. I think that's right. The first thing was that uh, for a few days he couldn't stand to hear women talk because their voices were so much higher than he'd been used to hearing in the past few years. He got over that. And what I think is interesting, or if you want to be symbolic, maybe this is symbolic, the next spring, when he was airing out his clothes, he had his hat, and he tapped his hat against his hat, and, and all of these dead bugs and mites come out of the lining and go skittering across the lining of the hat, and so he throws that out into the, the yard. They're there. They've been killed by the clean, cold Indiana winter, and maybe that's a metaphor for getting the bugs out of your head. About that time, he applied for a job teaching math and my mother, who was teaching the same school, got him the job through a recommendation. And as I like to conclude here, he got the girl and they got married the next year and he had a job. And except for the Air Force calling him back during the Korean War, he was set on the path he wanted to go. Yeah. Um, if he was here today, having gone through this experience now in creating this book, what would you what would you want to ask him? What would you want to talk about? Would he? I, I think you're lucky. A lot of us, um, maybe there's some unfinished business with our fathers. Um, I, I get the feeling that 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 you're fortunate and that you were able to kind of have the have a conclusion with him. It gives you more of conclusion. It's interesting to look at your father and see you as a 25 year old kid. Um. I think I'd ask him, when did he go to Sydney after all? Because I know he got to Australia sometime. I can't tell. There's some gaps in that book. That's the second book. That's the next chapter. Maybe. <laughs> Alan Boyer, and the book is Rocky Boyer's War. 
And that's our show for this week. If you have any comments, questions, or even a suggestion for an author you want to hear from, contact us via our Twitter account at WCBS 880 Books.